perfect from the first sip to the last drop. It's not about being hot. It's about perfect. The perfect taste. Satisfaction to your taste buds exactly like you want. The perfect temperature. Having total control over the warmth of your drinking experience. The perfect time. Consuming a delicious cup whenever you want. You can have all this, this perfect experience right now for $129.95. What is it? A coffee mug. But not just any coffee mug. The winner of Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2017 coffee mug. Ember's ceramic coffee mug is uniquely designed to be controlled by your smartphone device, which gives the mug the ability to warm your cup of, well, it depends on what part of the pond you're from, cup of hot tea or coffee or maybe some of us hot chocolate with a temperature range of 120 to 145 degrees, giving the consumer the ability to control one's enjoyment of a warm beverage without the all-too-disappointment of a cold cup left out on the counter. You know, truth in advertising, I don't have one of these, but Christmas is around the corner. (laughs) Just kidding. Not really. Perfection. We both love it, and disdain it all at the same time, don't we? The thought of having something perfect brings with it the hope of endless fulfillment, total and complete happiness, endless pleasure to finally experience life in all the ways they ought to be. But the thought of perfection also makes us loathe it as well. When we take a sober assessment of how life actually is, perfection makes us realize that something isn't right. Something isn't right with us or something is missing from our life. Beyond the occasional cup of good coffee that Ember's ceramic mugs have provided for us, we often find ourselves week to week looking for improvement, wanting something better in life for the things that mean the most to us. I mean, we see this in friendships amongst children, don't we? Your child comes home, Mom, Dad, I've got a new best friend. And then it registers. What happened to last month's best friend? What about resumes and job interviews where someone who is quite flawed, and everyone can attest to it, puts the best presentation of themselves, their best foot forward, in order to impress an employer by hiding all their imperfections. And we see this in churches too. When Christians get disappointed, sometimes even jaded, because we discover that in the church, there are things like loneliness and dissatisfaction, immaturity and inconsistency that exist among Christians. 
So whether you are married or unmarried, young or old, we will all experience the bland and sometimes even painful fruits of imperfection because people will let you down and you will let yourself down. But sometimes, even as Christians, our problem originates when we simply have faulty expectations of what life is supposed to be like in an imperfect and fallen world. Our idea about how life is supposed to work for us can get a little skewed when we hope to get out of life is short-sighted, at least from heaven's perspective. You see, we are all raised in an environment where we pick up certain habits. We pick up certain ways of viewing the world, and if we become discouraged or even disillusioned with how we were raised growing up, we then begin to seek out inspiration from others outside of our family web. Looking for someone to help us then, we can unknowingly look for the wrong type of role models in our life. We don't even know who to talk to. We don't even know where to go. While others of us don't really think we need good role models at all. I mean, we are the best life has to offer. And not to mention, setting vain goals in our lives can get us off track too. Looking for love and ease and fulfillment by expecting perfection from all the wrong places. It can leave us feeling aimless. Without wisdom and seeing life from God's perspective, we begin making goals and plans for our lives that actually can drive us away from God, rather to him. Or we just throw up our hands. We just quit making goals altogether, which ultimately leads to boredom in your life. So, if people are sinful and Christians can be spiritually immature, then what is it that Christians should be striving towards? Who is it that we should be looking up to in our life? In our world and everything in it, including our brief lives and our physical bodies, is subject to decay. What is it that Christians should be longing the most for in this life? Well, to those questions, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, if you're using the chair Bibles that are provided, it's on page 571. 571. Last week, we left off in our sermon series in Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11, where we learned about the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, and how he gave us a sneak preview, a sneak peek in who he used to be. And what he formerly trusted in before he knew the Lord. But when Paul came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he saw that Jesus was the surpassing worth of all endeavors in his life. So what happened? Did life get easier? Well, no. But something new happened. Paul had a new direction. He had new goals. He had new joys. He had new expectations and hope. 
Today, we will continue our study in Philippians 3, starting in verses 12 all the way to verse 21. Please follow with me as I read God's word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize or the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I have one main overarching point this morning for our sermon, and then I will scatter various applications throughout the message. Here's your main idea. Pursue and wait for what God says is most important and imitate those who do that well. Pursue and wait for what God says is most important and imitate those who do that well. And my hope today is as a result of reading and expounding Philippians chapter 3 that God would use this passage to reshape our goals in life in light of who Jesus is and in light of eternity. So starting in verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect. In order to understand what exactly Paul is talking about, we need to unlock and discover what he has said in a previous section. So turn back with me to what we looked at last week, starting in verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7, we want to answer the question, what is the this that Paul says he has not obtained yet? Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, he says this, But whatever gain I had, you remember from last week, Paul talked about all the achievements and respect he gained from his Jewish community, uh, how he was a big deal, he was a big shot, uh, that was a morally upright person in the eyes of men. That was verses four to six. Paul says all of that, the gigantic trophy room of everything he had ever accomplished, when he came to know Jesus, he counted it as trash, rubbish, as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Simply put, Paul said that his new passion that would consume the rest of his life was knowing Jesus Christ. What does it mean to know Christ? Well, it's trusting in Christ's perfect work on the cross for our justification. He says right there in verse 9, to receive God's righteousness. Arresting in the finished work of Christ on the cross for all his sins. Paul treasured the righteousness of Christ because it included the forgiveness of past sins, present sins, and sins he would still commit. He relied on that once-for-all-time sacrifice that the book of Hebrews says that satisfied God's wrath, that purchased our redemption, that transfers guilty sinners to becoming and being declared righteous in God's sight. The sacrifice that would deliver sinners from their sin and from this evil present age, Galatians 1.4 says, and adopt them into his eternal kingdom as children of light. Children of the king who are perfectly secure in the love of God forever. But knowing Jesus Christ and becoming more like him. It's not like an overnight package you you and I might get from UPS or FedEx. I mean, think about it. If God really wanted to, in an instant, he can make all of us glorified the first time he touches our hearts. I mean, he spoke the world into existence. Why could he not make you and I perfect in a moment? I mean, he could change every person on the planet quicker than a 24-hour Amazon Prime order. But in God's mysterious wisdom and his desire to get glory from himself, all throughout the world, throughout all generations, he sovereignly chooses to perform this work in us throughout the rest of our lives on earth. You see, the initial change within Paul would occur in an instant on that Damascus road. We read about in Acts chapter 9. But the process of becoming perfect like Jesus would not be completed in his lifetime. And the same is true for you and I. This work is called sanctification. We learned a little bit about that back in Philippians 2. 
verses 12 and 13. If you weren't here for that, you can look it up on the podcast. Or you can read more extensively about sanctification in our church's statement of faith. This is where the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and enable us to become more like Jesus. So the this then that Paul is referring to in verse 12 is talking about Paul becoming like Christ, being conformed to Christ's perfect image. And what does Paul say in verse 12? He says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. You see, Paul wanted more than anything. He wanted everyone to know That knowing Christ and becoming more like him, even if that meant suffering for Christ, was his aim in life. Did you notice that back in verse 10? He says that he may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul didn't run from trials. He trusted God in them because when we trust God in trials, we become more like Jesus. You see, trials are not an obstacle to our faith. Trials are an invitation to trust God. You see, proclaiming Jesus Christ and the good news of his saving grace was Paul's boast. It was his mission. It was his ministry calling. But beloved, becoming more like Jesus for Paul was the highest calling in his life. A calling that was greater than any other calling God could put on his life or our lives too. That's why he says in verses 12 to 14, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted more than anything to be like his Savior. And because of that, his life was a constant leaning forward and not a reluctant sitting back. Paul had a clear focus on what his life was to be centered upon. He saw that his time on earth was brief, and so he viewed his life through the lens of these questions. How can I honor Christ in this situation, in this job, in this next conversation? How can I love these people or this person like Jesus does? How can I learn to look forward to heaven with Christ when suffering and sickness hit my life? You see, there was no circumstance and no day that Paul ignored the fact that Jesus saved him and that everything in his life was to be for that one purpose. How can I learn to be more like Jesus every second of the day until he calls me home? You know, knowing Christ even made Paul rethink how he viewed his past, didn't he? I mean, brothers and sisters, you need to hear this today. Some of you are sitting in these garnet chairs and you're spiritually frustrated because you're not growing. 
But one of the reasons you're probably frustrated is that you're condemning yourself by things you've done in the past. You keep rewinding the tape. You live in the if-onlys and the woulda, coulda, shouldas of years gone by. And beloved, if that's you, notice Paul's example here. He did not let his foolish decisions of the past define him anymore. Instead, he trusted that God would not only forgive him, but that he would redeem those bad decisions for good in his life if he kept his eyes on Jesus. He says right there in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind. He left his former life of self-righteousness and seeking man's approval behind him. But it wasn't just his failures that he left behind. Paul also didn't become stagnant in his devotion to doing what God had called him to do in the present. In other words, Paul did not allow himself to get cold on the bench. He did not allow himself to become super glued to his trophy case of ministry accomplishments in previous years. Instead, he was ever looking forward, praying that God would open more doors for gospel work, more doors for Christians to have churches in their community. Paul said, Lord, if you're going to keep me on this earth, make my work fruitful. Open doors. Do the impossible. Use me however you want. You see, at the end of the day, Paul did not view himself as some kind of egotistical maverick who did things on his own and everyone had to follow him. No, Paul saw himself as a perfectly loved but imperfect work of grace. If you would have walked in Paul's house as he was baking cookies for a distant aunt, you'd probably catch Paul singing in the kitchen, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. When we consider how Christians should view the past, it's natural for us also to consider how that affects local churches too. There have been all sorts of studies in recent years for why churches decline and eventually have to close its doors. And one common trait, if you read these studies, is that dying churches are generally stuck in the mud with a preoccupation for the past. In his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Tom Rayner gives his commentary on this common church malady. Quote, the most pervasive and common thread of our autopsies was that the deceased churches lived for a long time with the past as hero. They held on more tightly with each progressive year. They often clung to things of the past with desperation and fear. And when any internal or external force tried to change the past, they responded with anger and resolution. We will die before we change. And they did. 
Hear me clearly, these churches were not hanging on to biblical truths. They were not clinging to clear Christian morality. They were not fighting for primary doctrines or secondary doctrines or even tertiary doctrines. As a matter of fact, they were not fighting for doctrines at all. They were fighting for the past, the good old days, the way it used to be, the way we want it today. For sure, there were some prophets and dissenters in these churches. They warned others that if the church did not change, it would die. But the stalwarts did not listen. They fiercely resisted. The dissenters left, and death came closer and closer. Mr. Rayner summarizes this chapter in his book, by describing churches whose past is the hero in this way. Quote, their highest priorities were the way they've always done it and that which made them the most comfortable. Beloved, churches that are stuck in the past are churches that are spiritually in trouble. Churches that are stuck in the past are churches that are spiritually in trouble. You see, the more time that we spend trying to relive the good old days, rather than reaching people for Christ around us, before you know it, life moves on, and the church just got older and colder. When the past is the hero... Churches will value comfort over conformity to Christ. CCBC, hear that warning. We may have begun six weeks ago, but before you know it, we too will be tempted to relive the past. Beloved, we remember the past, as I told you in the first core team, for two and two reasons only. Number one, to learn from your mistakes and failures. And number two, to remember God's faithfulness to you. Beyond those two days, those two reasons, move forward. If not, CCBC will be another sad statistic. But that wasn't Paul's mentality, was it? Paul focused more on what lies ahead rather than what had happened back in the day. Paul gave off the aroma of a holy discontentment, a holy angst in his soul. Or to put it more eloquently, John Newton once said it in a similar-like fashion, quote, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. As passionate and greatly used of God that Paul was, did you also notice Paul's humility in this section? Paul humbly confessed that he had not obtained this perfect transformation yet. You know, Paul looked up in the mirror and he still saw those sinful blemishes, some besetting sins, those bumps, wrinkles, and spiritual zits on his face. He wanted to know Christ and become more like him, but he wasn't yet what he hoped to be. He wasn't yet 
what God promised that one day he would become. You see, that's one of the marks of godly humility, isn't it? One of the marks of godly humility is recognizing that you aren't as godly as you should be. But add one more element to it. Godly humility is also recognizing that you want to be more godly. You see, you're just a modern-day Pharisee if you simply look in the mirror and say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm more perfect than they are. Godly humility says, I am not godly in all the ways I know I should be, but boy, I want to be. That's why Christians confessing their sins to God and to one another is what characterizes a healthy church. You know, each week here at CCBC, we spend time doing that for about five to seven minutes in our service. We confess our sins to God, either I or another brother, up here. And you may have probably wondered, Pastor Blake, why are we confessing our sins every week? I mean, aren't we already forgiven in Christ? Well, absolutely we are. We are totally forgiven in Christ. But the confession we express to God is us agreeing with God that we have sinned against him and that we need his restoring joy. Because when you and I sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. But when we repent, it brings joy to the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing acknowledgement that we have not arrived. When you are here with us and joining in these confessions of sin, We are telling everyone around us that we haven't arrived yet. This is not a church for perfect people. It doesn't exist. And it's led by a pastor who's not perfect either. We're ungodly and we still need to confess where we fall short of that godliness. Brothers and sisters, a healthy church will be a humble church. A healthy church will be a humble church. I would go so far as to say this. If a church does not corporately confess sin, I'm not sure what you're confessing when you say you love Jesus. Beloved, the reason we love Jesus is because he died on the cross for our sin. I have found the most godly, most passionate Christians are most aware of the ungodliness in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, may you never Walk into church where this fake-it-to-make-it mask has got to be on. Check the ego at the door. You are welcome here. If you recognize your sin, you're welcome here. If you realize you're not who you want to be, you are welcome here because that's all we have to offer. This church is only for imperfect people looking to a perfect Savior. A church full of its members where the gospel is preached, the gospel is loved, and where grace is shown to one another because of the grace that has been shown to us. For those of you in here today who wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, it might seem odd to you that we are confessing our sins to God and to one another. But there's a reason why we do that from the depths of our heart. There's a reason why we sing songs like Not In Me and Like It is because in Christ, we've already been saved from the worst thing that could ever happen to us, eternal judgment. And in Christ, we've already been saved for the best thing that could ever happen to us, eternal life with Christ. 
You see, confessing our sins is not our attempt to keep an angry God happy with us. Confessing our sins is our trust in a joyful God that wants the best for us. The gospel we sing, the gospel we celebrate is good news. You see that our sin separates us from this joyful God. Our sin robs us of the joy we can have in him. Our sin separates us, it condemns us, and one day, if we stand before him in our sin, we will be judged eternally for it. That's bad news, that's scary news, but we have good news. The good news is this joyful, life-giving God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly joyful life, who always stayed focused on what lied ahead. And the Bible says that he, with the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and then was seated at the right hand of God. Jesus has already paved the way for us. Jesus has already given us the way, the truth, and the life in him. Jesus lived the perfect life in fulfillment of God's righteous standard. He placed himself on a tree bearing the penalty of our sin and three days later, God raised him from the dead. And now if you turn from your sins, stop living for yourself and turn by faith to Christ, you can know him today. It's the greatest decision you could ever make with your life. Why would you ever want to rebel against a perfectly good God? As Christians, we don't confess sins. Let me poke all our Baptist history real quick to regain salvation or rededicate our lives. We confess our sins to renew our hatred of it. And we confess our sins to be reminded of God's grace to us in Christ. That's why each week following the prayer of confession, let me see if you even pay attention to our liturgy, there is an assurance of what? Pardon or forgiveness. It's the weekly reminder that we're not perfect yet, but we are still loved by God, even in our imperfections. Isn't that what Brother Jeff read to us out of 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2? See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's a proof text against purgatory. That's a proof text against you can lose your salvation. You are God's children now. You have the Father's love now if you are in Christ. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the already but not yet reality of the Christian life. Perfectly forgiven, but we still sin and need ongoing grace. Set apart for God's holy purposes, but we are still imperfect in our pursuit of holiness. Listen, if you've been following Jesus and you've become frustrated, I want to encourage you. Welcome. The Christian life can certainly feel like a paradox. If there is no wrestle, there is no frustration, 
I would at least question what Jesus you're following. On the one hand, we rest in the perfect work of Jesus for our sin. And yet we are also told to lay aside every sin and weight that so easily entangles us, Hebrews 12.1. We are called to discipline ourselves from indulging in sin-sucking cravings, exercising self-control in all things, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. The scriptures actually tell us in several places, Philippians 3 being one of them, that the Christian life is likened to a race, a rigorous race, not a stroll around the park, a race that must be run with endurance, a race that is long and arduous, often rubbing against the grain of what is popular in the world, and a race that is sometimes tense and dangerous. In fact, towards the very end of his life, Paul described himself as a worn-out, victorious athlete at the end of his race and a seasoned wartime soldier at the end of a fight. He says in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all to have loved his appearing. Paul mentions this in 2 Timothy and in Philippians 3, that this long, rigorous, and dangerous race is all worth it in the end. An imperishable crown awaits us. A perfect prize is stored up for us. What's that prize? It's becoming like Jesus. His joy will one day in all its fullness become our joy. It's enjoying fellowship with our triune God in sinless perfection, in a perfect place, in a perfect body, with a perfect community, in perfect pleasure forever. This was the highest calling on Paul's life And this is the highest calling on our lives, too. But when Paul wrote this section, he was fully aware that not every Christian is in the same place in their race. Some believers are running hard and running well. Some believers are barely walking and stumbling all over the place. You know, have you ever tried to see your children or grandchildren, or for some of you, great-grandchildren, walk for the first time? They walk through the living room and to the front door and there's like blood coming down their face and snot coming down their nose and and they're all broke up. But guess what? They're walking and you're proud. That's what it's like walking as a Christian. When you're a brand new Christian or you're an immature Christian, you're going to make a lot of bonehead decisions that leave you all bruised up and snotted up. But guess what? You're walking and daddy's proud. Some believers have been running the race a long time, and they've got tremendous endurance. They're like oak trees of wisdom for the church. 
while others are still taking baby steps. They're drinking spiritual milk, and they're learning how to eat meat for the first time. You know, Paul knew this about the Philippians because he loved them. He knew they needed to mature. And he believed that God could use him as an example of God's power and patience to motivate them to mature as well. Look at Philippians 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Everything Paul just laid out for us in verses really 1 to 14. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You know, we all have to start somewhere, right? If you're a basketball player, you don't look like LeBron James in middle school. You might think you're LeBron James, but you ain't LeBron James. Just like the Philippians in Paul's day, we have represented in this room this morning a wide range of spiritual maturity. You know, just so we're clear, if you're a member of this congregation or you're interested in joining this congregation one day, let me make this loud and clear from your under-shepherd. It's a huge misconception that Christians have to think that we are all mature men and women of God. Brothers and sisters, just because many of us have grown up in church our whole life, we can sing old hymns, we might even use churchy lingo and be familiar with Jonah, we still might be babies in the faith. Just because we're nice doesn't mean we are mature. You see, if you grow up in a Christian home and have nothing but Christian friends and you go to a church that really never challenges you, it can be easy to slide into this comfortable Christian bubble that never gets tested, never gets stretched. You know, what does the doctor tell you as you get older, men and women? I'm just letting you know I'll be there one day. But what do they tell you when you get older? You need to continue to work your muscles because if you don't push your muscles, they're going to get weak. And if they get weak, they're going to begin to affect the rest of your body. Well, a faith that never gets pushed or stretched is a faith that can stay pretty weak, too. Brett McCracken once wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition entitled, Eight Signs Your Christianity is Too Comfortable. These were the eight signs he observed. Number one, there's absolutely no friction between your Christianity and your partisan politics. A faith that aligns perfectly with one political party is suspiciously convenient and lacks prophetic witness. Number two, there are no paradoxes, tensions, or unresolved questions. If you never ponder or wrestle with the mind-boggling tenets of Christian theology, such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the hypostatic union. You like that, Les? He liked that word. God's sovereignty existing with man's responsibility, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. These are just a few. If you've never wrestled through those things, your faith is probably too comfortable. 
Number three, your friends and coworkers are surprised to learn you're a church-going Christian. A sure sign your faith is too comfortable is if nothing in your life sets you apart as a follower of Jesus to the point that even those who know you well can't tell you are a Christian. Number four, you never think about or even remember the Sunday sermon on Monday. If Sunday sermons at your church are so forgettable or you're so disengaged that you rarely recall them after you leave church, your Christianity is probably too comfortable. Biblical preaching cuts us at our core and it will not leave us apathetic or unchallenged. Read Hebrews 4 verse 12. Number five, no one at your church ever annoys you. If you go to church with people who are always easy to talk to, always fun to be around, and always closely aligned with your opinions, tastes, and preferences, your Christianity is too comfortable. Number six, you never feel challenged, only affirmed. If your Christian faith never confronts your idols and challenges your sinful habits, but only ever affirms you as you are, this is a sure sign of a too comfortable faith. Healthy faith doesn't just celebrate you as you are, but relentlessly molds and refines you into the likeness of Christ, which is a beautiful but necessarily uncomfortable process. Number seven, you've never had to have a truth and love conversation with a fellow Christian. It's always more comfortable to just live and let live when there's an offense or sin that needs to be called out. It's more comfortable to just shrug when we see others in our community making unhealthy decisions. But this isn't true Christian love. Love isn't opposed to truth. And if your faith doesn't include the capacity to speak hard truths and love, it's too comfortable. And number eight, no one in your church could comment on any area of growth they've seen in you. To believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is to believe in change. Though not always linear, the Christian life should be marked by growth, forward momentum, and change for the better. If you're a Christian who's grown so little that no one in your church could identify any area of improvement, your faith is too comfortable. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything the Lord used by Brett McCracken's pen to push some buttons in your heart, spend time this week praying about that. Share that with someone to check up on you and ask, how are you doing in that area? How can I pray for you? How can I keep you accountable? Because brothers and sisters, it is God's will. I'm, I'm, it's not a mystery. You don't need to shake a magic eight ball. You don't need to wait for a sign and wonder. It is God's will that you and I grow and mature as followers of Jesus. But how do we know we are trusting? How do we know we are maturing in the faith? How do we know we have our attitude and mindset about pursuing Christ as one of maturity? The answer, your sins become less and less excusable. And holiness becomes more and more attractive. Your sins become less and less excusable and the pursuit of holiness becomes more and more attractive. Have you ever heard the old saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time? Well, Paul didn't fall prey to that. 
He gave us his aim. He gave us his target, his all-consuming pursuit. The one thing that drove him in his life was to become more like Jesus Christ. But Paul also knew that the Philippians needed some direction. You don't just tell people what to do. You need to show them how to do it. So what did Paul suggest? Well, he told the Philippians to identify and imitate the right role models. Look at verses 17 to 21. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here in this passage, Paul now reveals two types of people in the world to follow. No middle way. Two types of people in the world to follow. Those who are heavenly minded and those who are earthly minded. Those who are heavenly minded and those who are earthly minded. Well, who are the heavenly minded? Well, the heavenly minded are Christians like Paul and others. Men they would have known like Epaphroditus and Timothy that we learned about in chapter Two, they are fellow believers who are carrying out their lives with a passionate pursuit to be like Jesus. They are striving day by day towards Christian maturity, the highest calling on your life, the one thing that matters the most in your life. Brothers and sisters, when we gather each week on the Lord's Day, Look around for a minute. Just briefly do a little head spin, left and right. Look behind you, okay? This is a tangible reminder once a week that we need each other. We can't live this Christian life alone. And that means we need godly examples to follow in our lives, right? We need men at CCBC who will exemplify godly character like that of an elder in 1 Timothy 3. We need mature women who exemplify the godly character we read about in Proverbs 31 or Titus chapter 2. You know, one of the ways uh, that I get great joy in being a pastor is watching people come into the church and then God surprising them with his wisdom on how he led them here. You see, you may consider yourself to be a loner Christian, but God may have brought you to this church to teach you how to love and lead Christians. You may have come to this church thinking you were mature in the faith, but God may have brought you here to show you have a lot of room to grow. You may have come to CCBC with the mindset of, give me my ministry and I'll do it my way. While God may have brought you here to teach you how to work humbly with others on a team. You know, one of the ways you can love me as your pastor, one of the ways you can support me 
is by allowing me to spend time with other pastors I admire, to send me away, to encourage me, to surround myself with men godlier than me, that are more gifted than me, that have healthier churches than I do, that I'm challenged as a pastor. They can ask tough questions in my heart because when you support me to surround myself with oak trees in the faith, lions in the pulpit, it's a benefit to you and it's a benefit to my wife. To all my married friends in here this morning, you may have gotten married for all sorts of reasons back in the day when you had more hair and a, anyway, I won't say anymore. And maybe you look back on those days and regret your dating or engagement or the first years of how you lived out your marriage. But take heart. Philippians 3 is a sweet balm for your painful memories, even in marriage. You see, according to Philippians 3, it is a sweet reminder that God is working in your marriage primarily by first working on you. And instead of praying and looking for all the ways you want your spouse to change, spend some time looking for ways God has changed them, looking for evidences of God's grace in their life. Tell them. Encourage them. Write those sweet nothings on pieces of paper like you used to to tell them you see Christ working. Even if it's small and meager, it's still Christ's work. You see, not everyone is at the same place in the race, beloved. We have to be patient with one another, whether husband or wife, son or daughter, mom or dad, friend or church member. We need to be patient because we're all running the same race, but we're not all at the same place in our race. Paul saw it necessary for the Philippians to have good role models to imitate in order that they wouldn't pick the wrong people to associate with. He cautions them like a good pastor against earthly-minded people, he says in verse 19. People whose desires and aim in life is focused on me, 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 focused on sin and ultimately leading you away from God and leading you towards eternal judgment. Kids, one of the reasons God has you in your school, whether you're in a co-op, homeschool, or private or public, one of the reasons why God has you in your school, in your class, sitting next to that particular boy or girl is so that you would set a good example of what following Jesus looks like. You might even be looking at yourself and go, I don't think I could do that. I'm, I'm barely... Uh, I barely know what the Bible says. If you're trusting in Jesus today, kids, you already know enough to be a good example to your classmates. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And all my young professionals in here, you might be in the workplace and be the only Christian at your cubicle. You might be the only Christian that you're ever rubbing shoulders with. And God may have you there for a particular point in time to bear witness to the truth. I like how Daryl told me that story this morning, being a truck driver, but a Christian truck driver, very slick, I like this. He got in a conversation, I think, with a Pentecostal pastor, Assembly of God, Assembly of God. they're all exciting. 
he was dropping off a sign, and as the transaction was done, Daryl said, uh, you're not going to talk to me about Jesus? You're not going to witness to me? And Daryl caught him. Like a good pastor needs to be challenged from time to time. And so I appreciated that Daryl's using his profession. He's using his job to be a beacon of light. But I also want to be pushy with you a little bit. If you're in a profession where you are the only Christian and the people you work with are bringing you down, may I ask that you need to seek counsel on whether you need to get a different job? Even if you're making all the money, it's killing your soul. And God will honor radical obedience if it's done out of faith for him. Seek counsel. Seek counsel from godly people if you're in a tough situation as a witness for Christ. Well, we're not exactly who these people were that Paul's alluding to in verses 18 to 19. I mean, earlier in the chapter, he said, look out, look out, look out of these Judaizers. But it seems that these particular people probably weren't the Judaizers because their problem wasn't their doctrine. Their problem was their behavior. Now, it's obviously important for Paul to warn the Philippians of these type of friends and leaders to avoid because it's quite possible these were former members of the Philippian church. They had professed faith in Christ at some point, but eventually they stepped off the narrow way and became what Paul says, enemies of the cross of Christ. And the reason I think it could be former members, former professing Christians, is because it had brought Paul to tears. He was angry in Galatians, in the beginning of Philippians. But now it says that he's doing this with sorrow to see them rebel against Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's important to join a local church that takes church membership serious. We read in the scriptures that believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Galatians 5.9 so as a church, next week we plan on taking the Lord's Supper in the evening. Be sure, brothers and sisters, that you examine your relationship with Christ this week. Examine your relationship with other followers of Jesus. Maybe read the church covenant this week and be reminded of the privilege and the seriousness of being a member of a local congregation. Brothers and sisters, pray that we at CCBC would pursue one another in love to do one another's spiritual good. Pray for me as your pastor to teach clearly what the gospel is, what a Christian is, and pray that we would all encourage other churches to do the same as well. You see, Philippians 3, verses 12 to 21, instructs us to pursue and wait for what God says is most important and imitate those who do that well. But you still might be sitting here going, well, Blake, how can, I, how can I know I'm imitating the right examples? How can I know I've got the right people I'm looking up to? Three very quick things. First, look at their goals in life. Look at their goals in life. Notice again the prize Paul strives for. What are the goals and your closest friends have in their life? Number two, look at their heart for people. Look at their heart for people. Paul says he had deep affection for the Philippians. He was uh, made glad by the Philippians. He loved the Philippians. 
And yet we see in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, he was brought to great sorrow for people who walked away and opposed Jesus. And then thirdly, look at their hope in heaven. Look at their hope in heaven. Notice that a letter written from prison filled with themes on suffering and injustice and opposition, where did Paul keep his focus? With Christ in heaven. Look at verses 20 to 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Who are mature Christians? Mature Christians will be homesick for heaven. Mature Christians will make goals in life that help and not hinder their pursuit of Christ-likeness. And mature Christians will suffer and grieve in this life, but not as those who have no hope. You see, one day, all that has been ruined by sin will be reversed. Unfulfilled desires will one day be transformed into perfect joy. Imperfect bodies that become sick, injured, and deformed in this life will one day be transformed like Christ's glorious body in the life to come. So while we live out our days on earth, what should we be earnestly waiting for? A perfect president? A perfect wife? A perfect husband? A perfect child? A perfect job? A perfect house? Perfect weather? A perfect church? Perfect health? No. We await a perfect Savior. For Paul, Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Is that true for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us one life to live, but you've given us tremendous purpose by giving us a prize to pursue, and that is becoming like Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray that we would take what we've learned in Philippians 3 and apply it to our lives and to our church by your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.